Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Dr. G. So, Dr. G, you're in the room. Oh, thanks. So, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you can describe to me what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. Right on. So, I was born in Pullman, Washington, in the USA, in October of 1964. So, I've got my, my 58th birthday is coming up this month. It's October Ooh. of, right now, it's October of 2022, and I'm going to be 58 years old. In just a few uh, few weeks, so I was born. In- is a great great time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well, it's you know what? Any time is a great time to be alive. But what I love is how fast technology is taking over, and I want to see what happens in the next fifty years. I'm super excited to see where we go, especially with un- unlocking DNA as software and um, regenerating organs and and that sort of thing. I'm super excited about that in the medical world. Mm. My name is Dr. Michelle Gordon, and I grew up in a small town in Washington State called Richland. It's one of three cities uh, known as the Tri-Cities there. And Richland's claim to fame is it was part of the Manhattan Project. And when, when they started Manhattan Project, they brought in tens of thousands of people, and they had to rapidly build up the area. And there was... Uh, it, it, when, 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 when they started the, the Manhattan Project, there were only maybe 800 people in the town. It was a small farming community, and it wasn't very accessible because there's three rivers there. And what they did was they, they built this up, and they put the, the nuclear plants over there, and they built the plutonium for Nagasaki. And that is really the claim to fame for the town that I grew up in. As a result, the town is very cerebral. It has a lot of think tanks and it's a draw for the scientists. There's a lot of science that goes on there. So education is very highly regarded. I uh, started like from kindergarten, you know, I started, I went to a small school that's now closed. And then I went to the Catholic school, which was just around the corner for a couple of years. And what I remember was that the nuns were strict and I didn't like it very much. <laughs> and then I went on, <laughs> uh, then I, then I went on to the, the same school where I went to kindergarten and that, and then um, through sixth grade and the, what I remember is being top of class with reading and learning cursive and having some very nervous teachers. Um, and I used to play football with the boys. Those, those are the, those are my elementary school memories. <laughs> uh, went on to junior high and. Um, so let's, let's, let's just put that into a bit of context. You say sure. football. Now, do you mean American football? Oh, American football. Sorry. Soccer? Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't call Americans do not call soccer football. Uh, we call it soccer. So American football is the, the thing with the weird looking pigskin kind of oval <laughs> ball. So yeah, American football. Sorry about that. So uh, what position were you playing? 
Oh, I didn't play positions. I would just go run out and they'd throw me the ball and nobody would think I could catch the ball. So I would often score because <laughs> they didn't <laughs> think I could catch the ball. I always liked running. Um, that was that was something I really enjoyed was running around and, and sport. I always liked that. So um, then I went on to junior high. And what's really interesting is both of my parents smoked. And so, of course, you when you, you we model what our parents do. And I think I smoked my first cigarette at age six. And then I became quite a rebellious teenager. And I used to smoke in the bathroom or at recess. And so I smoked quite a bit um, when I was when I was a kid. And I became quite rebellious. But I still got an education. And I I made it through. I think I think I did. Um some gifted classes in, in junior high, but I really was not interested in education. My parents broke up and, and emotionally it was a really tough time for me. And then I went on to high school and there was a, I, I took a, like an AP biology class or something in high school. And the teacher thought that I was a slacker from the very beginning. And, <laughs> and he pissed me off so bad. So, so I am one of these, like I have oppositional defiance disorder or something because that guy, I just went out to prove him wrong. He's like, I know who's going to get a good grade and who's not. And I just went out to prove that guy wrong. So, of course, I got an A in that class. He just really pissed me off. So, <laughs> so, so, let's just have a quick look at um, the time when your parents broke up. Sure. Um, where, where were you actually living? And did you go stay with your mother or did you go with your father? Yeah. So what happened was in junior high, I, um, I actually, I was really rebellious and I ran away from home <laughs> and I was 15 and I ran away from home and then ended up coming back and my parents did not know what to do with me. So at, at one point they had me in a mental health facility, which I didn't need because I don't have mental health problems. I was kind of dealing with childhood trauma and at another point, they put me in alcohol rehab, and I, I didn't drink at all. <laughs> so, so it was it was really funny. Um, I kind of entered into that whole AA world, Alcoholics Anonymous world, early on. But I was never a drinker. I didn't drink that. I, I just I, I didn't care about alcohol. So it was really funny. I I bought into that. So I was into that kind of world uh, very young at fifteen, and this is nineteen eighty now. Um, and I'm kind of figuring out my sexuality and realizing that I like girls and kind of always had. But then in, in America, especially where I grew up, it was very, very fundamentalist and it wasn't OK to be gay. And so I had all of this pressure from from the church. And and I actually later on in my life ended up willingly doing conversion therapy, trying to be straight. It was really not smart. But anyway, um, so in, in junior high, uh, my mom actually moved about a couple of hours away because she went to do her own, um, she went to do a master of fine arts. And so I did live with her for a year and I did go to high school where she was going to school for one year, but then I went back um, and finished high school with, with the people I had grown up with. And, and I, I mean, I was kind of a slacker in high school and after, after I graduated high school, I was trying to fit into everybody else's mold. I didn't know who I was. And I actually matriculated at a, a small private Christian college. 
that did not go well. And I went with my friend. I, my best friend was, um, she was a basketball player and I used to go to all her games. And so I thought that maybe I'd be able to do that. And we just never saw each other. And so I didn't enjoy the courses. I, I was not interested at all in the, the religious aspect of it. And so I, I left and did some junior college stuff. And I always stayed in school. But um, so the biggest city in Washington state is Seattle. And so I made my way over to Seattle and I started working. So I've been working ever since I was 16. I always made my own money. I started working, but I wanted to continue to go to school. So I, I enrolled in, I think it was West Seattle Community College. I spent a couple of years there kind of doing some science, you know, nighttime science and some humanities and that sort of thing. And when when I was, I want to say like 18, 19, no, I was, no, when I was 20, I moved to California because I wanted to not be gay anymore. So I went, <laughs> I went to California to do this religious thing and I don't regret doing it because it, it helped me in my own personal development, but I, you know, I realized that you will have to be who you are. So that was, that was a good lesson. But what happened was I, I met a guy, I got married to him in uh, 1988 and I went to college. So I, I went to re real college. So I, I went to another community college and I spent two years there. And I used to say I was kind of making up for my lack of high school education because I didn't really follow a path. And I applied to two colleges after, um, after the city college. And it, it was University of California at Irvine and a small school of science and engineering that competes with Caltech at MIT for students called Harvey Mudd College. And I knew that if I got into Harvey Mudd, I'd have to spend four years there. And I knew that if I went to UC Irvine, I'd only have to spend two more years with the goal of always going to medical school. But I decided I wanted to take the harder path. And so I really pushed to get into Harvey Mudd. And I'd call the admissions counselor pretty regularly and and it was my personality, actually, my, my perseverance that allowed me to get in. And uh, I, I, I went there and I had a baby while I was there, which was crazy. Nobody's ever done that before or after. <laughs> so um, it was it was really it's really a tough school. I mean, it's it's the school that most valedictorians go to. So it, imagine competing with the one percent of the one percent and mm. um I was happy to, to graduate that place with like a 294. I was, I was super happy. So we have a four-point grading system in America. And, you know, if you have a 4.0, you're, you've gotten A's throughout. And a 2.9 is like a B minus average. I was, I was pretty happy with that. I had to work really hard to work, you know, the, just some of the math, uh, statistical thermodynamics, physical chemistry. So it was all science. I graduated with a degree in biology, a Bachelor of Science in Biology. And that was, I, I was actually able to do some really cool research. I went to this remote island off of the San Juan Islands in Washington State called Tatouche and did uh, some research on the genetics of soft corals. So we're just running gels and looking at the genetics of soft corals. I was working with, uh, with one of the professors there. And I learned a lot about that. And then I graduated college and I was... I was thinking maybe I'll go get a PhD in physics or something. And I started looking at that, but instead I went to work 
And I went to work downtown as at a, a law firm as IT. So I did, I did IT. I was taking apart computers, putting it back together, you know, like customer service kind of stuff. That's kind of a bit of a, a bit of a, a way off of doing science. Going yeah, yeah, computers. it was. But I'm, I, yeah, I'm a problem solver. And so um, it was good. I, you know, I was making decent money and, and that was okay. And then my son kind of stopped walking. And he stopped eating and drinking, and I had to leave the job. And my son, actually at 21 months, was diagnosed with cancer. And as as that was happening, kind of my marriage was falling apart. And so once my son was stabilized, the the we ended the marriage. And I took a job actually at the college doing IT. So I was working at the college I had gone to, but all along with this idea that I really wanted to go to medical school. So I had applied to a whole bunch of medical schools all throughout the country. And I got one interview and that was at the school that was seven miles from my home. And it was, it was on uh, April 15th, 1996. Now, why was this important? Because on April 7th or no, April 8th, 1996, my brother died and I was at work and I knew that I had this interview and I had to go to Atlanta for my brother's funeral. And all of my colleagues were saying, just postpone your, postpone your interview. And I'm like, they won't give me another one. And I just didn't even, didn't even think about it. So I went to my brother's funeral and then I went to my interview and they put me on what's called a wait list. So I didn't get in, I was waitlisted. And I was relentless in pursuing a seat in that medical college. I, <laughs> I, I, um, I probably called them from May through August. I called them at least once a week. And this was in the 90s, in 1996. So it was back in the day before we had good voicemail. We had, it was when we had a tape recorder at home. And you'd call in and poke a number to get your messages. And so I was kind of obsessive about calling my, my answering machine waiting for messages. And I would call the registrar at the school and say, look, you know, I'm right here or the admissions agent or whatever. I said, I'm right here. I will drop everything to go to your school. I, I just, you know, so one day I did that, was calling my, my home phone and there was a message from the school. It was five days before school started. It was a message from the school saying, we have a seat for you. Just bring some money. I was like, oh my, I had to, it was like $1,200. I did not have it. Call up my dad. I'm like, dad, <laughs> I got a seat in the medical school. I need $1,200 now. And so in America, we have this thing called Western Union uh, where you can send money and it comes out as cash. And this was before bank transfers, before Zelle or Venmo or any of these things. So I ran to the local grocery store, got the cash, ran to the medical school and secured my seat and started school five days later. Wow. And that's, that's the story of my, my matriculation into medical school. So I missed all of the pomp and circumstance that goes before medical school. There's a white coat ceremony. There's all sorts of things. And all the while my son's getting treatment for cancer. And so for the first two years of medical school, he was still getting chemotherapy. And the reason why I decided that I had to go to school was because I knew I was smart enough that I could make it. I didn't really care about my grades because once you graduate medical school, you're a doctor. 
and I could still focus on him and I would have a decent living at the end of it. So I didn't have, wouldn't have to rely on anyone. And that's kind of how it worked out. Did my clinicals and moved to Chicago for my internship and then chose surgery and moved to New York for a surgical residency and stayed in New York and had a thriving practice. I, I practiced medicine for 15 years as a general surgeon. I grew my practice to five surgeons and then realized I hated it. <laughs> so I left. <laughs> So, so you're going through all of that, all that graft and everything. And yeah, yeah, it took me it took me 30 years to realize I was, I was in the wrong career. <laughs> Outrageous. And I mean, look, medicine did medicine treated me well. I was able to put away a lot of money. I I was really satisfied with it for a long time. But the problem with medicine is it's location dependent. And as I as I became more mature, I realized that all I want to do is travel. And I live in New York, but I'm recording this from the UK. And I've been, I've been in the UK in Paris. I went to Paris for a few, for like a week, but I've been away from New York since September 29th. And today is October 11th, right? It's the 11th. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. A couple of weeks. And I'm not going back to New York until November 8th. And I now have a, what, you know, a location independent business because I do life coaching and it's not easy building a different, it's a very different kind of business from medicine. People don't come to you like they're sick. Hmm. You know, you, it, it requires, it requires people to see what you're doing and it requires some vulnerability in the advertising and that sort of thing. So it's a very different type of business, Yeah, but it allows well, me to be free. Can, can we, can we just go back a little bit? Let's, let's, sure. let's, so you pestered the life out of <laughs> a poor, poor um, <laughs> college to get in. Yeah. And you managed to get in. Now, during that, that first couple of years where you, your son was going through all of that, how yeah. much support did you get? I mean, oh, how, so how was you able was... to look after your son during the day? Or, um, or, yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a, babysitter that he had been going to since he was little because I was going to work. So she she took him back after he was stable. And the marriage, you know, my ex-husband was really quite con contentious. And he, when I had to take boards, one time he said, yeah, I'll, t I'll take him for the board exam. Because in America, once you finish medical school, or there's, there's three board exams you have to pass just to get your license. And I had the first set of board exams and it was scheduled for this day. And my ex-husband the day before said, I'm not going to watch your, I'm not going to give you free babysitting. And he did everything he could to sabotage me. It was really, and he continued to do that all throughout while my son was growing up. Hmm. And I mean, I'm not going to say that I didn't play some part in, in of course causing that relationship to fail or not to be a mature relationship because I was immature. I was 23 years old when I got married and you know, we, we separated after seven years and nine months or something. So we were still really quite young and, but he was just really bitter. And it was almost like, because our son had this illness, he was broken and it was a reflection on him. It was really, I, I don't really understand this, the psychology mm -hmm. behind him. But he did everything he could to try and keep me from being a doctor. 
And his mother, uh, my son's grandmother, was quite upset that I wasn't staying at home and taking care of this baby. But I needed to create, I needed to create a, a solid income for myself. Mm. And that's what I did. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I took out over $250,000 in student loans to get through medical school. Wow. And I mean, it was just like, I, I just wanted to get through it. And I did. But, you know, and, and I'm not getting you know, medicine was really good to me. I'm, I'm not going to say it wasn't. But the the bureaucracy, the working with hospital administration in America, the way things are, how hard it is to get paid from insurance companies. It's probably the only the only service based business where you pay after where you get paid afterwards. In now, obviously, you go to a massage, you're going to pay afterwards, right? You're going to give them your credit card. They're not going to let you leave. But when you have a when you have a doctor's visit in America, the government doesn't pay. It, it comes afterwards. You have to submit a whole bunch of paperwork. And there was, there's millions of dollars that I wasn't paid just because the insurance companies just chose not to pay. And that's mm. the power of American corporations. So, of course, we're going after them and that sort of thing. But it's been two years, and I'm, I still haven't <laughs> gotten the money. It's just like crazy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so with my son what I did in medical school was I, I would really just study the notes. I didn't go to class much. I study the notes. I'd take the tests. I most of the time passed the test. Sometimes I didn't, but I passed, I was, it was adequate and he was getting care for. Um, but like my husband, my ex-husband would take him three weekends out of the month. And so I would be free on the weekends to study. And then he'd be with me during the, during the week. Hmm. So how long was you actually doing that course for? Normally it's about sort of seven years to become a doctor. Right. Well, medical school in America is four years or five, depending on how you do it. So, you know, I, I like to say that my, my real education started with the city college after I got married. So that was two years. And then I spent four years at Harvey Mudd. So there's six. I spent four years at med medical school. That's 10 and then five years learning how to become a surgeon. So 15 years is how long it took me to learn my craft. And then another seven years working on my own to feel really, really good about it. And then another eight years to say, oh, I'm done. And I grew my practice. I mean, I eventually had four people, four surgeons actually working for me. And as that was, as the practice was growing, I realized I absolutely hated leading surgeons. I mean, I hated it. And surgeons are opinionated and I mean, you have to be a commanding personality and it just wasn't, it wasn't the type of personality I wanted to lead. And so I kind of figured a way to get out. But then in November of 2019, one of the surgeons who was working for me, who was actually my medical director died by suicide. And that was a huge wake up call for me. I was like, uh, you know, I've got to really take a look at my life and decide whether this is how I want my life to be. And so I gave myself permission to really dream big and look outside of you know, what would happen if I, if I left medicine behind. Now he, he wasn't, it wasn't the job that did him in. He was having a really bad time with a, with a divorce and he just was despondent. So it was really sad because he didn't reach out for help or anything. It was a real surprise. Hmm. 
and that's that's one of the the things that I cover. I, I do a live stream on a Thursday, uh, and we talk about taboos, and mm. we're trying to normalise the conversation around uh, those issues about suicide, about bereavement, about death, uh, yeah. about anxiety, about addictions. Uh, so we're just trying to make people feel comfortable at talking about sure. those things and. And, and suicide is a particularly tough one to talk about because for so long it's been a taboo. It's been stigmatised. And and the person that does take their own life, there's there's massive reasons for it. And, and generally it's something to do with, with their mental health. That's, yeah. And, and, and the person that's determined to take their life, you won't see. They, they, they don't let on. Yeah. Until they succeeded at it, and they only do it at once. Yeah. Whereas, whereas somebody has tried it a few times, they're they're asking for help. Right. And uh, and those are the ones that we can concentrate on help. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's really it's really tough um, when somebody does do that, and it, it does leave a lot of pain for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's such a big hole. Um, I, you know, I went down and saw his family, and we had a chat about what had happened. And I wasn't able to go to his funeral because I'd had a trip planned and I, I couldn't change my trip. And so I, I wasn't able to go, but I did provide some, I don't remember flowers or something, but it was, it, it was really a shock for, for this. And everyone was shocked because he seemed like a happy guy and you just don't know, you just never know. But, but, the thing is, is he was on call that night that he killed himself and I had to go in and step in and, and take care of it. I had to do an operation. I mean, I really went into survival mode. I, I don't think I ever cried about that. I mean, I think I had a couple of like sadness feelings, mm -hmm. but it was, it, 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 yeah, it, the main thing for me was it was a wake up call to how, really decide how I want to live my life. And mm -hmm. I started looking at, okay, what's important to me? How do I want to feel? How do I, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And um, I've taken a lot of risks since then because I quit medicine altogether. And I mean, look, I worked in the pandemic. I lived in New York. New York was the first in America. It was the epicenter. We, nobody was surviving. It was completely demoralizing. And then on top of that, just walking into the hospital, was really hard because they, they just put so many restrictions. They wanted to make sure we were COVID negative. They wanted to check our temperature. I mean, it was, it was, it was demoralizing and demeaning mm -hmm. as if, as if we couldn't take care of it ourselves. We have a lot of education. It's not like we're going to, you know, go and flaunt yeah. anyway. So, and then where I was, I was operating on people with COVID, I was wearing three masks and, and I mean, I lost colleagues to this disease. I, there was a really great nurse who died from it and in, in our hospital. And she, she was, she was a fantastic nurse and just being that close to death. And as a, as a doctor, especially as a surgeon, we see a lot of death, especially in trauma. People come in after a car accident or a motorcycle accident or a tree falling on them, that sort of thing. And, and it's quite often people don't survive that. Gunshot wounds, stabbings. And so we see a lot of death. 
But I've never seen death like COVID when COVID first hit. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody was surviving. And all of them were having organ failure. And it was it was so awful. And at that time, I had this internet business that was moderately successful. I was like, forget it. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I made a plan to, to leave. And so in July of 2020, July 31st, 2020 is the last time. That's when I actually retired from medicine. And I do not practice medicine anymore. Mm. But I wear scrubs because I'm a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just looking at your surgeon bit then, what did you specialize or were you just sort of a, a general mech and knife and, and have a go at ev- anything and everything? Or Well, so I, I think it's really funny when people say just a general surgeon because that's 15 years of training uh, <laughs> to, to just be a general surgeon. Um, well, you don't know what I mean. Did, so did, I did you of... specialize in, in one particular type of operation or we sort of multitasked? Well, I, I did acute care general surgery. So I did emergencies. So I saw a lot of death, but people would come in with say appendicitis or gallbladder attack or a perforated colon or diverticulitis. So that mostly abdominal things or, you know, maybe, you know, blumps and bumps, a cyst or, you know, some sort of a, an infection somewhere. So those, those were the, that was the mainstay of my practice was really doing emergencies because I liked that. I, I, at one point, in 2012, I, I looked at my practice and I said, I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like elective surgery. I am going to just stop doing elective surgery and only do emergencies. And so I started taking a lot of call. And in, in, so if you have an, a practice that's a lot of elective stuff, you don't want to take call because call is unpredictable. It keeps you up all night it, and you may have to cancel your cases or push them back. So it was really easy for me to take 10 to 12 calls a month. And I was able to make a quite a good living just taking call. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, you, that must have given you a huge amount of experience uh, just yeah. in, in, <laughs> in knowing your way around uh, the inside of somebody's body. Yeah, so. right. I mean, I don't even know how many gallbladders I've removed. It's, it's, it's in the thousands appendixes I've removed. I mean, there's a lot of things that I can do. And, and if there weren't such a liability, because each person is unique and different and there's always a chance, I'd probably still be doing it. But in New York is the most litigious in the state. I mean, in the, in the country, it's a quite litigious area to be working. And I had a lot of anxiety. I, I, I did not like how I was feeling because every time I went to do an operation, my heart would start to race. I didn't, I, I was afraid I was doing something wrong or I was going to go before the peer review committee because they didn't like what I was doing. And so it just, and it wasn't ever a friendly place. This hospital that I worked at for 15 years, it was never a friendly place. The first thing I was told when I went there and met uh, the, the, the guy who had been there for a long time, he said, you'll never make a living here. And so it was never friendly. It was, it was never a place I wanted to work. And I, I kind of built myself this, this box, this, I was in this cage. And as I realized that it took me a long time to see that I, I was like, I, I'm not going to stay in this cage. I'm leaving. And that's when I decided to leave medicine and figure out how I could live anywhere. So 
how did you leave medicine and how have you got to where you are now then? Yeah, so what I ended up doing was... that come about? Yeah, I started... So what happened for me was I went through menopause, which is another taboo subject that's not get talked about enough. Menopause is a big... We've talked about that. Yeah, it's it's a big change in women's lives. It is a... It's like another puberty. It's but it's the reverse of puberty because you're losing your hormones. Yeah, and we, women we put, feel... a, we put a we put a different spin on it actually. Yeah, um, we looked at it from the male perspective and and how the male uh, copes with the female menopause. Because I yeah, mean, it's hard. I mean, because I, she's, I've, she's, I've been she... through it a couple of times, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's she she may it... go crazy. I mean, because loss of estrogen is a big effect on the brain. And on top of 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 the the craziness, the the mood instability, there's um, a lot last a loss or a lack of sex drive. And when that happens, men feel like they're not loved or cared for. And so, from the male perspective, it is menopause can be really really tough. And mm. I think that that is what contributes to the Hollywood image of of women and why women who are can I curse on this. Well, that normally. Okay, that all normally right. So, women who are <laughs> who are who are perceived as too old to have relations with, um, are kind of pushed off to the side, and we see mm. this this dynamic of you know twenty somethings with seventy somethings in Hollywood because old older women like me are not desirable anymore, and the menopause is a is a time of it's just such an opportunity to reinvent yourself. And so I had, I had a menopause business and I was doing life coaching with the menopause business and I was using menopause as a way to bring people in. But what I was really doing was helping them change their lives. And that business attracted a lot of people who wanted, who didn't really want life coaching. They wanted somebody to give them a pill powder, a potion or a patch to solve their menopause problem. And there's nothing like that. It's not possible. And so I actually changed the focus of my business from menopause to more of uh, life coaching. And it's, uh, it's now called, it's the, the, the coaching program is called Launch Your Life. And, it really, and, and I have a podcast called Launch Your Life too, where I talk more in depth about mindset and how important it is in, in getting anything you want in life, that you have to become somebody different every single time you want to achieve the next, the next thing in your life. And then I've, I've done seven episodes of a memoir and I'm, I'm on a break right now from the podcast. It's been a couple months. I haven't released one, but if you want to know about what it was like in Richland growing up and, um, and then some of the trauma that I went through as a child, which is also taboo, another taboo subject. I had a lot of sexual trauma as a child. Um, you can go and listen to episodes 162 through 169 of the launch your life podcast. But in terms of life coaching, what I've discovered is that I have, I have gleaned so many aha moments just from being in a coaching call where I wasn't even the one getting coached. And then when I get coached, I've just had so, so many more breakthroughs than any therapy session. And I was in therapy for a long time. <laughs> But I've had just a lot more, a lot more breakthroughs with, with life coaching. And so I, I took what I've learned and I've developed a curriculum 
around how to become your own best friend, how to launch yourself into who you really are. Wow. So you mentioned that um, you're on tour, you're in the UK at the moment. So what are you doing? Because you're, you're in, in scrubs, so you're, you're sort of doing the odd, uh, <laughs> the odd well, street, you, I, I, street I, I operation to help out. <laughs> no, no, no. I wear the scrubs it, it, because it's because I'm a doctor and and it's kind of like the doctor authority sort of thing. Um, and it's easy. I don't like to make a lot of decisions about clothes, <laughs> especially. And so uh, the, the the scrubs are just are just super easy for me. Um, but no, I'm just visiting the UK. It's I, I've always wanted to come here, and I had I hadn't had a chance, and I, I realized I could be here for an extended amount of time, and so I that's what I did. I I mean I went to Paris for business, and then I decided to come and check out the UK, and I'm going to be going. I've already been to Wales. I'm going to Ireland. I'm going to Scotland. I just won't make Northern Ireland this trip, so I'll have to come back. Mm. So, and what about England? You missed out the best bit. Well, England. I'm in England. Isn't that like, I mean, <laughs> well, I don't can't, know. can't really class Liverpool as England. <laughs> oh, why not? What are you talking about? <laughs> You'll find out when you go out to your car and it's up on bricks. <laughs> oh, well, I, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the, the rivalry among, <laughs> among parts of this country. So. So you're just traveling around, um, enjoying yourself then? Yeah, and I'm working. I'm working. Mm. I mean, I'm working right now, and I'm building out curriculum. I'm still doing my coaching. It's just a little later in the day. <laughs> yeah. So a question, how is your son? So my son is 29 years old. When he was 15, he started falling down and had these weird seizures that um, are called atonic seizures. So what happens is there's a signal maybe on one side of the brain and it goes so fast to the other side of the brain that, that the, the body just slumps. And as a result of those seizures, he had uh, what's called a subdural hematoma. So he fell on his head, his head bled, and he was at a boarding school. We found a really... He's, he had chemo and radiation as a baby, and that made him disabled. That, that gave him some cognitive delay. And so at 15, he fell down and had this big subdural hematoma on the right side of his brain. And um, he went to the children's hospital. And rather than take him right into surgery, they waited until he had left side paralysis a couple of days later. And so he, um, we got it evacuated. And... And he, he got his mobility back, thank God, but he kept falling still. And they have this thing called a video EEG where they put the, put the things on the head and just they keep a kid in, inpatient and keep the videos on them. And he did it while, while he was inpatient. And the, the treatment for this particular type of, surge, of seizure is uh, what's called a corpus callosotomy. So the corpus callosum is an area in the brain, a bunch of nerves that connect the right brain to the left brain. And so when you have one of these seizures that starts here, it goes across the corpus callosum. And so the treatment is to just cut that in half. So my son's 15 years old. 
And I'm looking at the side effects of this thing and I'm like, okay, well, he can continue if he was like wearing a helmet and it was, it kept falling down all the time. So I'm looking at the side effects of this operation and it's, there, there are some really bad side effects like mutism, like they just don't talk anymore. And I thought, well, what, what else, you know, it's either that or he keeps falling. And so I went ahead and, and had them do it. And thankfully he, he didn't, he didn't have mutism, but he is a little, he, he's really kind of funny because sometimes he's in his right brain and he's just quite creative and spacey is the best way to put it. And then, and then other times he's in his left brain where he's logical and thinking and having a conversation, but he doesn't really merge them. And, and it's, so it's hard to get him to do things. It's hard to get him to stay in a job. It's hard. He's, he's walked out of a few jobs because he just like decided he was done. So that's, that's the, that's the hardest part, but, but he's 29 years old. He lives in an assisted living facility. You know, he doesn't, he, he, he has, it takes, this is all of his own ADLs, activities, daily living. He takes care of his body. He feeds himself. He, so he does okay. I mean, he can write, read and write and um, he, he does okay. Hmm. I had a tough old life bringing up then or growing up. Um, yeah, I mean, he's just medical, just a lot of medical stuff. Mm. And that was that was just really, really tough because he he was just in and out of hospitals. I mean, we almost lost him a few times when he was a baby with through pneumonia and things like that. But he made it through. And mm. um, and when he was in, in 2016, he had a meningioma, which is a benign tumor of the brain. But it was it was enough that it was causing it had, he had like a mass effect. And we only knew it because he was doing beha- bizarre behavior. He went to his friend's house and made coffee at night. It's like really, really bizarre behavior from the tumor. And so he had that out. And um, yeah, so, I mean, he's just medically complicated, but otherwise he's a real sweet kid. So that's just brought up to date then. So you're now able to travel. Yeah. You've got a... A business that's that's starting to thrive, right? Um, life coaching people. So, are you happy? You know, I'm a lot happier than I was. Um, I was really, I had no idea how miserable I was. There, there were a few times actually when I was in the thick of this surgery thing that I really understood why some people killed themselves, and I, I would have these flashes of, should I stay on the earth? And when I stepped back and looked at that, I was like, oh, I don't want to feel that way. How am I going to feel better? What am I going to do to feel better? And I started looking at that. I started seeking out life coaches myself. And that's, that's when I learned how to make friends with the voice in my head and, or just ignore it because your brain lies to you. <laughs> I mean, it does. It does because we have a, we have, you know, in Western culture, we have this whole thing about um, not not being good. We, we push ourselves down. There's just so much negativity. And the way to get where you want to go in life is to believe in yourself and to love yourself. And it almost feels counterintuitive to allow yourself to, to be gracious and gen- gentle and, and uh, adore your, your, who you are and the body that you have. And you know, the, the whole idea of 
the Hollywood norm and Victoria's Secret and you know, not all bodies look like that. And just to, to come to a place where, hey, I like to eat. I don't have to have like all those muscles like other the people, other people. I can, it's okay. I can eat and I can love my body and I can go for a run and it doesn't freaking matter. And that that's, that's kind of what happened for me. And that brought me to a place where I could start to really decide once, once, I, once I became friends with myself, I started to decide, you know, how do I want to feel? What do I want to look like? I mean, last winter, I was tired of New York winter. I was just like, I'm not doing another freaking winter in New York. I don't have to live. I don't have to stay in one place all the time. And so I packed up my Tesla and I drove across the country from New York to California. And then I drove back in April after all the snow was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took about 10, 10 days and the only thing I would say is that if if I were to do it again, I would spend a week in southern Utah because it's absolutely gorgeous. It's canyon lands and arches and Zion National Park. I would spend a lot of time in the, the national parks doing uh, photography, which is kind of a passion of mine. Hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Dr. G, thank you for your story. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. No, you're most welcome. I've enjoyed that. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time... You can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.